Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this, uh, this uh, week is Robert Janeski. He's the author of a book called Rich Nation, Poor Nation, Why Some Nations Prosper While Others Fail. Welcome to the show, Robert. Hey, it's great to be here. Just give people a bit of your background of the places you've taught uh, leading into writing this book. Well, I've, I've been an economist for, uh, oh gosh, almost 50 years now, or <laughs> 40 years. Um, I've been educated at New York University. I've taught at New York University and the universities, Chicago's Graduate School of Business. Uh, but most of the time, I've worked in the business field. I've been in the financial area, worked for a large mis- Midwest bank, uh, been on a number of boards. And actually, this is my fifth book that I've written. Uh, so uh, all on economics, all on free markets and classical economic principles. So I'm very excited about this book. And your website is classicalprinciples.com. What can people find at that website? Uh, what they can find is they can find a number of uh, articles that I've written, a number of references that I make to financial markets, trying to uh, figure out what the real value of stocks would be at any one point in time, and whether or not the market uh, for stocks or interest rates are about where they should be or uh, whether they're likely to go up or down. So I've, I've done a lot of that. I've done a lot of analysis of free markets, uh, for example, in the area of healthcare. Uh, I've done an analysis of markets that show that in the United States, uh, where we spend maybe $12,000 per person each year on health care, uh, under conditions of free markets, uh, that should be down to about $4,000 per year. Higher quality, lower prices, whenever you move in the direction of free markets, which I refer to as classical economic principles. So there's a big debate going on in the world. It has been for a long time, but very intense now, about does capitalism work? Uh, you hear a lot of younger people on campus. I think there was a recent survey, 50% or so of them thought socialism was better than capitalism. Uh, why is capitalism getting a bad name these days, particularly amongst younger people? Well, I believe it's uh, really a lack of understanding of what capitalism is, what free markets do, and what socialism does. And as a matter of fact, that, that's the reason I wrote my book, Rich Nation, Poor Nation. I've written a number of books uh, extolling the virtues of free markets and capitalism and all the great things that occur. But one thing that I noticed that was missing was an extensive historical analysis of uh, a very consistent historical analysis showing just what happens under conditions of uh, socialism, which is pretty much extreme government control, or even communism, which is even more government control than that. But I went even further. I said, what happens in the United States when we simply move away from the sort of economic principles that the classical economists were favoring? That is principles of low taxes, minimal governments, um, free markets. What happens when we just move slightly away from those principles? And what I found, um, first of all, no one had done this as far as I could see. I I went through the literature and said, okay, surely someone has taken this particular objective to task and tried to answer the question. 
And the interesting thing is there was no systematic analysis, even of the history of our country. And, you know, when you go back to the beginning of the last century, government spending was only about 2% of the economy. I mean, that was pretty much a free market type of situation. And today, we have government spending at about 20% of the size of the economy. We have regulations uh, that add another 15 percentage points or so to that. And we have state and local governments, which add another amount. When you add up all the costs of government today, it's about half of the economy. So a number of people could argue two ways. Uh, conservatives have argued that, well, whenever we've moved away from these free market classical principles, we end up uh, doing so much uh, worse than we otherwise would. And But no one has done the numbers to try and systematically set up a criteria for how well we perform. And just to offer the main conclusion in my book, I did this and I found that there were uh, five periods in our past, over the past century, when we moved in the direction of going away from these classical free market principles. And that the areas that were when we did that that were very clear totaled about 52 years. I then looked at all the areas in the past where I felt it was very clear that we were following the classical economic principles. We either had low taxes and free markets, or we were cutting taxes, limiting government spending, and moving back in the uh, direction of free markets. And there were 50 years uh, since 1900, when only 50 years, when I felt that those conditions were in place. And the conclusion that I reached after looking at the, the economy's performance is that in the 50 years when we were following classical economic policies, cutting taxes, moving toward free markets, limiting the role of government, uh, we had an increase in real wages of 187%, which was a big chunk of all the increase that we've had over the past century. Now, the, ex the other extreme, what about these 52 years when we were raising taxes, increasing government spending, regulating the economy? We had a total in those 52 years of no increases, zero increases in real wages. Uh, to me, uh, this was a really a, a shocking phenomenon. And I maintain, just to get back to your question, if, if individuals, if, if students, if the younger people knew about this, if they were willing to even look at the evidence, I don't think that they would have any trouble coming to the conclusion that socialism is bad, communism is worse, and even a little bit of socialism can be very costly for an economy. So why would that have happened? That you'd have so much wage increase when there was more freedom and less government intervention and lower taxes and uh, no wage increases. Was, was it because the money was going to government or what would have caused such a disparity there? Well, it's a combination of things. It's basically, what I found, because I did this not only with the United States, but then after I did the analysis of the United States, I went to the rest of the world and looked at 40 different countries, countries that had moved aggressively toward socialism, away from socialism. And as you know, because I have the charts in this book, you, I then plotted what was happening to real incomes during those periods of time, what was happening to the country's wealth. 
And it is clear not only in our country, it is very clear to me in, in just about every country that I looked at, that whenever we move away from what I'll call economic freedom, economic freedom is when you follow what the classical economists wanted us to follow. Whenever you move away from economic freedom, conditions deteriorate. And for those countries that have never had economic freedom, they've never let their people basically control their own lives from an economic standpoint, those countries are still mired in poverty today. But the real interesting thing to me is when we go around the world and you look at countries that move from one direction to another, that is from having no economic freedom to having a lot of economic freedom, and maintain that economic freedom. That is, they maintain low taxes, and, uh, a very low level of government spending relative to the rest of the economy. When you have countries like that that maintain that over time, they become very wealthy. Uh, Singapore is one example. People in Singapore today are wealthier than the United States, although they started a lot later than we did in experimenting with individual freedom. What the argument often would be is that capitalism runs to excess and you need government to control it. And a good example would be, and you have a chapter on this, the progressive era in the 20s when it was booming, lots of freedom, small amount of government, Republicans controlling the Congress and White House. But then you had the crash and the depression and people wanted a savior and uh, Roosevelt came in, huge amount of new uh, regulation and taxes. But the feeling is, had you just kept going, capitalism had failed, basically. You needed, I mean, not a quite socialism, but close to it under FDR. So what would be, let's say, let, I'm going to have you run for president in 1932, okay, when the economy is in depression, and you have a choice of Roosevelt and uh, basically continuing Coolidge from before. What would be the argument to continue free market economics and not have the kind of thing that Roosevelt would bring in in an extreme situation like that? Well, what I found was that the movement away from economic freedom really began in 1929 under President Hoover. Uh, President Hoover was a very uh, interesting political figure. Uh, he was in the previous administration, but he did not believe in either free markets uh, or in classical economic principles. He did not believe that people should have freedom. Rather, he believed that government should be in there controlling the economy. So 1929 is uh, the, the beginning of a period of moving the country dramatically away from economic freedom. And incidentally, you know, people today are so politically attuned that they think it has to be either a Republican or a Democrat uh, who is good in terms of the economy. And what I found historically is that every period where our country left economic freedom and ran into difficulties, and the 1929 period is just another example of this. Every period was started by a Republican president. And well, what did Hoover do? What, what did Hoover, you're saying almost that well, the Hoover biggest, yeah, the uh, big, precipitated the Depression in a certain way. Is well, that right? Yeah. Uh, he, uh, the biggest thing he did was uh, in, invoke the Smoot-Hawley tariff. Yes. Which, as that moved through Congress in 1929, uh, there's a step-by-step -step analysis of as it got closer to being passed, the stock market crashed in 1929 in anticipation 
of the fact that tariffs are potentially very disruptive of, of the economy. So that was the biggest thing he did. The other thing he did, uh, and it wasn't entirely his fault, was there was a collapse in the money supply. Uh, this, I believe, was associated with gold flowing out of the country and to France. And there's been some interesting research that uh, that's been done. But that wasn't Hoover's fault. But it also created a difficult economic situation. So you had two major events occurring here. Uh, now, as soon as the economy weakened, uh, Herbert Hoover started to get more involved. He wanted the government more involved than ever before. He wanted to regulate the farm sector. He wanted to regulate a number of other sectors. And this made the economy progressively weak. Now, the fascinating thing is that when Roosevelt got elected, uh, we immediately had an economic recovery because among other things, Roosevelt took us off the gold standard. And so this tremendous liquidity squeeze that was occurring ended and you had almost a doubling in 1933 when he took office of what was going on in terms of industrial production albeit from a very low level and things started to expand very rapidly unfortunately he didn't stop there he then went on to his whole new deal program which turned out extending the depression right on through to 1940. but you can understand why people would want to vote for Roosevelt, things look so desperate that they wanted the government to do something about it, right? You can understand the, the popular appeal of that. Absolutely. The thing is, later on in uh, FDR's term, uh, one of his leading secretaries looked back and said, you know, I just don't understand what's going on. We did exactly what Herbert Hoover did, and we can't get this economy moving again. <laughs> so uh, I, I think it's important for people to know that uh, economics, it, it, in economics, it's policies that matter. It's not the political party that a person is associated with, but it is the policies that that particular individual wants to pursue. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Robert Janeski. He's an economics professor and author of a new book called Rich Nation, Poor Nation, Why Some Nations Prosper While Others Fail. Website to find out more about him is classicalprinciples.com. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. We've all been there. Struggling to keep up with credit card payments? Searching for a simpler, safer way out of debt? Well, here it is. Cambridge Credit Counseling is a nonprofit service that has been helping people reduce or eliminate their credit card debt for over 20 years. Most of us have made late payments and even gone over our credit limits. Before we know it, our balances are out of control and we can barely afford to make the minimum payments. If this sounds familiar and you're ready to take control of your debts, call Cambridge right away at 1-800-897-2200 for a debt-free analysis. 
Cambridge will work with your creditors and may be able to reduce your interest rates and get you out of debt fast. In fact, Cambridge's typical debt management clients save almost $150 every month on their credit card payments, and they're debt-free in just 50 months. So there is a simpler, safer way out of debt, and it all starts with Cambridge Credit Counseling. Call 1-800-897-2200 for your free debt analysis. Cambridge Credit Counseling is a Massachusetts-based nonprofit agency providing services nationwide. For complete licensing information, visit them online at cambridge-credit.org. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Has your small business been turned down for a loan by the bank? Is lack of capital hindering your business growth? Small businesses unable to obtain bank financing or tired of merchant cash advances can now get the financing they need. Corporate Lending Solutions provides short and long-term capital, revolving lines of credit, and unsecured business loans. Does your business need help with payables, supplies, or payroll? Corporate Lending Solutions has powerful programs to help. While getting a small business loan can be a long, daunting process, with Corporate Lending Solutions, it's simple and takes only one to three days. Call 800-261-6478 or visit CorporateLendingSolutions.com to learn more. 800-261-6478. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money After Show. My guest this hour is Robert Janetsky. He is a economics professor. He's taught at uh, Chicago and other places. His book is called Rich Nation, Poor Nation, Why Some Nations Prosper While Others Fail. His website is classicalprinciples.com. Welcome back to the show, Robert. Hey, great to be here. So let's get at the core reason why freedom creates prosperity and government control and regulation does not. Is it about... Incentives, is that the core reason where people incentivize to do better? It's, it's a little bit of Adam uh, Smith's uh, kind of magical hand, uh, invisible hand. Is that the reason why? Yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, a lot of Adam Smith's <laughs> magical hand. I, I don't think uh, there are many things that have changed since Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations. Uh, I, I, that, that's the most popular book ever in economics. And what Adam Smith said is that when you give people economic freedom, people will tend to respond and they'll they'll respond in a very positive way. Uh, They'll respond in a way of trying to be as innovative as they possibly can be, which is really the source of increasing wages and increasing living standards. And if you give them the protection of the rule of law, uh, they will start to accumulate assets. And once you've accumulated assets, capital, plant, equipment, machinery, software, whatever, uh, that's the basis for generating even higher increases in wages. And when you allow free markets to operate, you get the most efficient combination of resources that creates the greatest amount of goods and services. And that's another reason why you end up getting high wages or higher wages under those conditions. Now, what happens when you have the opposite 
conditions. When government steps in there and says, well, we're going to make things better. You know, we think maybe there's too much of a diversity between high incomes and low incomes. So we want things to be fair. So we're going to take some resources away from the people who are making a lot and make sure we give that to people who are making a lot less. And it seems like an attractive idea. As a matter of fact, we've experimented with that five different times in our history. The first one being the Wilson years between 1913 and 1920. And each time, what has happened is it has failed. Now, one of the reasons it's failed is, you know, all those obscene high incomes that people are earning, what do you think they do with that money? Well, they yes, they spend a lot of it on luxuries, but what's left over, they tend to invest in the rest of the economy. And so there's a lot of growth. And you start raising taxes on the rich, usually they don't cut their standard of living very much, especially if they're married. They, they want to keep that standard of living up. So what do they cut when you raise their tax? They cut the money that they were putting in to build capital that will generate higher and higher wages. So that's one of just one of many effects that occurs here. And when government comes in and starts regulating markets, then what you have, you have government guessing what things should be worth or which industries should prosper. And the end result of that is an inefficient use of resources. And countries that do that become a lot less productive than they were before. And that's why wages, wages fail to increase in that type of an environment. So how do you honor people who say the uh, amounts of income inequality are just so outrageous today? CEOs make whatever it is, 7,000 times their average worker's salary and get huge benefits and bonuses and so on. And the average wage, maybe it's going up a little bit, but hardly keeps up with what the top guys are getting. Uh, the top 1%, you know, have 50% of the assets. I mean, just there's a lot of income inequality right now. And people are saying that's capitalism gone wild and it needs to be uh, you know, rejiggered so it's more fair. One of, the, one of the things that I say in my book is that, uh, you know, this, this idea that when, when a country grows and prospers and incomes go up because of the prosperity, the difference between the higher incomes that are generated with economic success and zero income <laughs> becomes progressively larger. I mean, I, I believe this is just a natural outcome of prosperity. If you're going to have prosperity, most people are going to get ahead. But as they get ahead, the difference in income is going to be greater. Another thing people fail to understand is that when you look at wages today, if you look at gross wages, that is what companies are paying individuals, it's incredible. I mean, the average salary there is somewhere in the 70,000, 75, 80,000. This is average. Now, most people don't see that. And the reason they don't see it is because government has come in and basically confiscated a lot of that. Some of it's directly confiscated in the form of taxes that we pay. We're all familiar with that. Government also confiscates from because of social security payments. Uh, government also con uh, confiscates income because they uh, order companies to comply with various regulations. And the companies have to comply with those particular regulations. Uh, and also, because of the way the tax system is structured, a lot of the income that we receive is also in the form that doesn't show up in the paycheck. It's in the form of a retirement account or a 401k or something like that. So there's a huge difference between what people end up getting paid after taxes 
and what companies are actually paying people. And if people could see that difference, you know, if it weren't for the government taking all this money, we would have significantly more spending power in the hands of individuals than we do right now. What is the process of converting a country which has had no economic freedom into one that does have economic freedom? I think of Eastern Europe after the fall of the wall or even China under Mao and now it's extremely prosperous. What is that process like to convert a place that's been not free for a long time into a more economically free place? It's very disruptive. Uh, as I point out in my book, there are a number of countries. I would add Chile to that list uh, in, in Latin America. Uh, and Chile's uh, was, economy was absolutely devastated in the 1970s because of a movement in the direction that Bernie Sanders would like. Uh, I mean, the government took over everything. They tried to equalize everyone's income, and the total economy was absolute shambles. Uh, the, there were riots in the streets. It's like Venezuela today where people can't even find food or whatever. And the military took over. And that was a very disruptive period because you had a lot of people uh, that were arrested or killed for fighting the government. But the go- what the <coughs> Chile did uh, is it imported people for, actually from the University of Chicago who were going to school there who were being taught under free market economists like Milton Friedman. And they brought them down and the military said, look, we don't know what to do, but we think you guys have some answers. Why don't you restructure the economy for us? And they started restructuring in the early 1980s. And it took five to 10 years before you could start to see the effect of that. Because it takes a long period of time for an economy to develop into a prosperous economy. You have to build capital, you have to build investment, uh, but it worked. And Chile today uh, is the most prosperous economy in Latin America. And it's also an economy that's been recognized for having a high degree of economic freedom for a number of years so far. It's usually in the top 10 of all the economies in the world. Now you have a situation in China, which uh, again was a country in in terrible terrible, uh, state of disrepair in the 1950s and 1960s. Because again, they follow the idea that government has to be fair, it has to make sure everyone's incomes are pretty equal, it has to take control of the economy with five-year plans, they're going to plan everything, because God forbid we should allow free markets and individual freedom to operate. And in the early 1980s, a fellow named Deng Xiaoping uh, took over in China, and he decided uh, first, actually in the late 1970s, he was going to experiment with uh, capitalism, a form of capitalism, limited form, in all the farms so that the people who were farming could keep at least some, a small percentage of their output. And he found that all of a sudden China, where which had people starving, started to increase its food production. So then he started loosening up further and further and further. And the more China loosened up, the more prosperous it became. Uh, China today, on average, is not a prosperous country. They're about in the middle of the world in terms of average living standards. They do have some spectacular showcase cities, but they also have extreme poverty that offsets that. Uh, but they have made more progress, for, especially for a very large uh, country, than anyone has ever made 
as a result of moving in the direction of economic freedom. Uh, one of the main reasons that poverty throughout the world was cut so much in the past couple of decades is because of China's move, which was followed by India's move, as all of them threw off this failed system of having the government try and control people and run the economy. It's a terrible system. And I, you know, I, I just really grapple why people can't see this, because the ex it's one thing not to have seen this before the fall of Russia and the fall of communism there. But with the examples that we've had in recent years, it's simply inexcusable to me that people can't understand what creates prosperity, what creates poverty. But apparently there's still a large group out there that has a difficult time grasping that. Very good. We're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman with The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Robert Janeski. He is an uh, economics professor at, uh, at Chicago and other places. His book is called Rich Nation, Poor Nation, Why Some Nations Prosper While Others Fail. You can also check out uh, his uh, writings at classicalprinciples.com. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Attention heroes, current and former firefighters, law enforcement, military, medical, or educational professionals. Heroes can receive rewards averaging over $2,500 when they buy, sell, or refinance a home. Heroes come first. Along with the Homes for Heroes is the nation's largest hero reward program. Their mission is to provide extraordinary savings to heroes who provide extraordinary services to our nation and its communities every day. Learn how you you can purchase a home for no down payment, no closing costs, and get money back at closing. Find out how you can own for less than you may pay for rent. Get your hero rewards at heroescomefirst.com. That's heroes, H-E-R-O-E-S, comefirst.com, 888-437-6114. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. 
You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Robert Janetsky. He is an economist, a professor, and author of a book called Rich Nation, Poor Nation, Why Some Nations Prosper While Others Fail. Welcome back to the show, Robert. Good to be back. So we've had a dramatic change in the last year or so since President Trump was elected. Under Obama, we increased taxes, we increased regulation, like with health care and energy and financial services and all kinds of things. Trump is doing his best to dismantle that, I guess it might be the right word, at least the regulatory part, and the tax bill, lower taxes. He took away the individual mandate for health care. So how do you think it's going so far, and is, is this going to revive growth in the way you think it should? Uh, I, well, I believe that so far what's been done has mostly been extremely positive. And, and as a matter of fact, it has historical precedent. I mentioned that there were five times in our history when we, for a number of years, moved away from giving people the maximum amount of economic freedom over their lives. And uh, then we reversed that uh, on four occasions. And I believe we're right now in the fifth time that our nation has decided that, uh, you know, extra government controls and spending are just not doing an effective job. And I don't think it necessarily started with President Trump. Uh, you know, there was a Republican Congress, and they did make some moves toward trying to loosen up some regulations and control government spending to a better extent than before. Uh, they didn't make a whole lot of progress, but they did make some progress. So we might have actually had the uh, first turn in 2016. Uh, I think 2017 has been a major move, uh, especially uh, with the cut in tax rates at the end of the year. Uh, this is a big positive for the economy. And President Trump has already been cutting regulations and trying to cut them as drastically as he could from the administrative side. And that's another positive factor in terms of what we've seen historically when wages have been increased. So we, we've got a lot of good things going now, and I'm expecting the economy is going to continue to perform uh, pretty well this coming year. I think we're going to be looking at 4% growth by the time the year is over. All the economists say that's impossible, often for demographic reasons. We just don't have the, the people who are trained to do the jobs to, to take it. If we did an infrastructure program on top of what we've already stimulated, that there's no, no bodies there, <laughs> no workers to, to do an infrastructure program. Uh, well, the workers are there, they're just not in the workforce. And what we've started seeing already with our, uh, just with this last month's unemployment number, is there are an awful lot of workers who are not working voluntarily. They just don't want to be in the, in the workforce because in many cases, depending upon the circumstances, uh, the tax burden that they end up facing and then the, the loss of benefits uh, becomes so destructive that they simply prefer to just take the time off and do something else. Uh, there's a huge amount of people in that potential labor force that can be brought back into the economy. So I, I would ignore the straight idea of the demographics, which incidentally, yeah, they're right. The demographics are only growing in the working age population by about half a percent a year. Uh, so you, it's very difficult to get the 2% or so growth in employment from that particular item. and um, But you can get it 
if you create enough of an incentive for people to come back to work who are out of the workforce because they are simply disincentives to them working. And I think that's one thing we're going to see. The other thing I expect we're going to see is an increase in productivity. Productivity is the key to whether or not we get increases in wages. Productivity means how efficiently we are performing and cre combining resources to create output. And if we can create productivity uh, growth at a 2% rate, which is a historical average, 2% uh, productivity and 2% uh, weight uh, employment increases, that adds up to about 4%. I'm actually hoping we can do better than 2% productivity growth and you wouldn't even need the 2% a year increases in employment. But anyway, those, those are all forecasts. Uh, this is the sort of thing that happened in the past when we shifted from having the government control everything to moving toward the private sector. Uh, we do have a unique situation today though. We have an awful lot of regulation, which is why in the past uh, t decade or so, even though productivity appears to have grown kind of slowly, maybe half a percent or one percent, the increases in government spending and regulation ate up all of the increase. And so workers had their wages falling year after year. And that to me is something that we really have to be careful about because the regulatory burden has become even more important than the amount of government spending that's done in terms of sapping growth from the economy. Let's talk specifically about health care. So Obamacare came in, I guess, 2009, 2010, um, and the number of people who are uninsured dropped. Uh, exchanges, a lot of people signed up for that. Um, and uh, the Republicans tried to repeal the whole thing. That didn't work. So they took away the mandate for people to buy coverage as part of the tax bill. So we're kind of in this half and half land. We still have Obamacare, but it doesn't have the mandate. What is your prediction of what's going to happen to the healthcare system in, in this situation? <laughs> That's, I, I don't know what's going to happen, to, but, but let me lay out the framework here because it's really fascinating. Uh, first of all, before President Obama came in and, and had all of his ideas regarding healthcare, our healthcare system has become progressively more controlled by the federal government. They control uh, individuals because of Medicare, Medicaid, they control because of regulations in the health area. We do not have a free market in healthcare. As a result of that, uh, plus adding the Obamacare regulations, which incidentally are still in effect, uh, healthcare takes 18% of our total output, our total income in the economy. Uh, that's, that is more than any other country in the world. We have the most expensive healthcare system. And it is also the most inefficient system in the world. Uh, I, I travel the world, I've, I've looked at what happens when you have a free market in healthcare. And you can see it in isolated places in the United States starting to pop up. And what happens is healthcare costs go down by two thirds. So let me, let me just put it in, in terms that most people can relate to. Uh, we spend about $12,000 per man, woman, and child in the United States each year on healthcare. In a free market environment, you would get better quality, lower prices, and the healthcare costs would be closer to 4,000. So we could save $8,000 per person for every man, woman, and child in this country per year if we had free market healthcare 
instead of all the regulatory burdens that we have preventing people from doing whatever they wanted to in terms of getting their health care. We can still have companies supporting the individuals. That's not the case. This company could give you a certain amount of money, whatever it ends up being, for your health care. And the government can even kick in with that. The important thing is not how many people are covered by insurance. The question is, what is the cost of health care after all this? And we have the worst system anywhere I've seen in the world. What would be some examples around the world where there is freedom in health care and costs are low? Because you think of Europe having nationalized systems and China, most most of the big countries have nationalized healthcare systems. Where, where is their freedom that's, that's successful? Look to Canada or or Europe for an example of, uh, of an efficient healthcare system. One example, uh, right where I am right now here in uh, in Mexico, um, they have a dual system. They have the government system where the government controls everything. You go to the government hospital. And from what I'm told, you arrive there at maybe four in the morning and get on a long line so that, you know, at some point during the day, you can see you can see someone for your care. It's terrible care. It's well, let me say sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, but it's certainly very inefficient. But Mexico also has a free market system where doctors can set up their own hospitals and no government regulations. And but. It's like the free market. When you need medical care, you go in, and the first thing you do is you give them your credit card. And you see prices right up front. This is how much the doctor charges for a consultation. This is how much is charged for that. And they tell people what you're going to pay for each and every procedure. And the cost of the procedures compared to the U.S., they're less than a third. Uh, I've, I've, I've been coming down here for 10 years now, and I just am absolutely amazed. Um, let me give you just one uh, example that's very close to me. I, uh, I had some arthritis problems from sports injuries that were affecting my knees, and they got to be so painful. I went to my orthopedic uh, fellow up in the States, and he told me that the, the, there was absolutely nothing he could do but replace both knees. And the cost of that, just for the hospital, is like $50,000 per knee. And that doesn't include, if you've ever gone through a medical procedure in the U.S., you get bills months on end that you've never yes. imagined that just keep coming in. You have no idea what the whole cost is going to be. Here, I did an experimental thing with stem cells. And it's just been over two weeks. All the pain is gone. My knees are feeling fantastic. And the cost is closer to $6,000 total for everything. I mean, now we're not even allowed to do what they do here in Mexico in the United States. Be, why? Well, look at the amount of money associated with a knee replacement. It's just absolutely fantastic. And that's just one example. And I can go example after example. But the point is, we can save an inordinate amount of money per person. So the health care would be very affordable. And I would even like say, okay, look, you want to give poor people more health? That's fine. But whatever you do, get the price down so it's affordable for everyone. And the only way you can really do that, I believe, is the free market. Indeed. Okay, we're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Robert Janetsky. He's an economics uh, professor uh, author of a book called Rich Nation, Poor Nation, Why Some Nations Prosper While Others Fail. You can find out more about him at his website, classicalprinciples.com. We'll be back after this.
From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Looking for an investment option? Consider Secured Real Estate Income Strategies. Secured Real Estate Income Strategies is a real estate-backed option offering investments with a monthly income objective. The goal of the strategy is to lend money to real estate developers. SREIS offers an 8% preferred return per annum, plus a share in any profits. While there is risk, including loss of capital, and you should carefully read the offering circular for full details, Secured Real Estate Income Strategies screens each real estate loan carefully. Call 888-444-2102 or visit securedrealestatefunds.com to learn more. 888-444-2102. Jordan Goodman is an advisor to and part owner in Secured Real Estate Income Strategies. This does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any securities. Securities offered through North Capital Private Securities, member FINRA, SIPC. Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth and Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth and Equity's program. There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Robert Janetsky. He's an economist, uh, taught at the uh, University of Chicago. Uh, his latest book is called Rich Nation, Poor Nation, Why Some Nations Prosper While Others Fail. You can find out more about him at his website, classicalprinciples.com. Welcome back to the show, Robert. Good to be back. So in your book, you kind of do a quick world tour, and I just want to go through some of the places and how these principles are playing out in real life. So let's start with Europe where in general uh, it's pretty uh, socialist, uh, government-dominated. What, what, what has been the result of that policy in economic growth in Europe? Well, their living standards throughout almost throughout Europe, with a couple of exceptions, are on average much lower than they are here in the United States. So that's one of the effects. But that can be an effect of something over time. More recently, uh, Europe has gone through the same sort of low that we have gone through. That is, you know, we moved more in the direction of relying on government. So did Europe. And the end result was uh, both the economies there and the economy here have slowed down with wages either flat or down, kind of sluggish growth. Uh, we are in the process, in my judgment, of changing that situation with President Trump and his policies more, 
more than anything else. And if that continues, I think we'll pull out of it. Europe has just taken a look at us and some places in Europe are saying, gosh, we don't want to be left behind like we were in the 1980s. Maybe we should move in the same direction and reduce taxes and reduce regulatory burdens. So I believe that uh, hopefully uh, not only the United States, but Europe also will catch the idea that uh, economic freedom is the way to go. Policies of economic freedom, if you want to increase your output, your wages, your wealth. Do you think that was part of the reason British voters voted for Brexit? was to have more economic freedom and less control by Brussels and the European Union? I believe that that was one of the reasons. You know, uh, the import in, of uh, immigrants was another reason that they were, they were looking at it. Uh, and I think it, what, really, uh, what we really have to look at now is whether or not the United Kingdom is going to move in a more positive direction of classical principles. Uh, they talked about it, but so far I haven't seen a whole lot of movement in that direction. Now let's go to the other extreme, which is Hong Kong and Singapore. Uh, so just give me a sense of what kind of economic freedom is there and what has been the result in their economies. Well, Hong Kong uh, is, is fascinating because it was one of the first countries to move uh, pretty much as far in the direction of economic freedom as you can move. I, I think for the longest time they had government spending uh, at about 10% of the economy and taxes were no more than 10% anywhere. And there was no capital gains tax. And, um, and as a result of that, year after year after year, they were able to become very wealthy. They were able to go, come from uh, extreme poverty to having income that today is on par with the United States. And they continue to rank in the top. Actually, Hong Kong has consistently been either number one or two, most of the times number one in the world in terms of overall economic freedom. Uh, because of their low taxes, because of their uh, lack of government regulation. And I also believe that Hong Kong is unique. They would be much wealthier than we are today if it weren't for a lot of the immigrants coming in from mainland China who are very poor. Because what that does is even if you're growing at a pretty rapid, rapid rate, if you're taking in an awful lot of people uh, who have very low skills, it's going to lower the average wealth in your country, the average generation of wealth, because you simply have a lot of lower income people coming in. And they continue to let people in, which I think is, is fine, uh, but it has also hindered their growth. Now, Singapore is a little different because Singapore is an island. And so they can control their immigration uh, to a much greater extent than they can control it in Hong Kong. So they have not had this drag. Uh, and their incomes today are far and above what they are here in the U.S. on average. But it's a relatively small country. It's got, I believe, something like five million people. So uh, it's a lot easier, it can be a lot easier to control an economy in a smaller country than it can be when you have an awful lot of people as the United States has or as Europe has. So let's go to a big country, which is Russia. You, you call it haunted by history. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Russia's been communist and state-controlled. It seems like under Putin they're more state control they have been. What is that doing to the economic growth there? Yeah, well, they've, they've, they have a really interesting history. And the history of Russia is they have probably as a country been blessed with gr the greatest amount of natural resources of any other country. We, we know about their oil and their forests and everything else, but they've never been able to combine those resources efficiently. And one of the reasons is the history of communism. 
That's a good example of what happens under communism, because for many years, a lot of people here in the United States thought Russia was a lot richer, that the people were a lot better off than they actually were. But the numbers weren't very good, because they would, uh, the government would control the industries and they would produce things that really didn't have value, but the government would say they were valuable. And when communism collapsed, what we saw was a huge collapse in the reported incomes in that country. Now, after it collapsed, they started to move in the direction of economic freedom, and they're more in that direction today than they were before, uh, but from a very low base. And then you're absolutely right, under Putin, uh, they really don't have a rule of law that is essential uh, for an economy to prosper. So they are struggling in spite of their economic wealth. Japan is another place you, you talk about Japan being the, set, the sun also sets. I mean, it had been a place of tremendous economic growth. What has taken hold there? Well, um, Japan, as I go through in my chapter, moved in the direction of economic freedom following World War II. Uh, they had tremendously uh, positive incentives for people to invest. There was no capital gains tax. Uh, they, they had extremely low tax rates. Uh, as a matter of fact, they cut taxes every year, I think, for something like 20 years in a row. Uh, they, and, and they prospered. Now, they didn't have complete free markets, but going from such a low base and rebuilding their economy, uh, you might recall, some of your listeners might recall, in the 1980s, uh, there was one of the episodes of Back to the Future, uh, where uh, Michael J. Fox, I what, what his name was, <laughs> ended up working for... Japanese companies in the future, because there were a lot of people who felt they were going to take over the world, surpass the United States, and then they did a turnaround in their policies. They started raising all their taxes, especially their taxes on investment. They increased government spending, and when the economy fell apart, they increased government spending even more as we went through into the 90s and over the past decade or so. And so Japan suffered. They suffered an extended period of slow economic growth. And I don't see a whole lot of indication that they've come out of that sort of period of malaise. We have about a minute left. Why don't you kind of summarize the difference it would make in economies around the world if they move more towards economic freedom instead of government control and higher regulation? Well, it would be a, a, a boon to the people. And what uh, when I looked around the world, I think the most fascinating place that I looked at was Africa. Uh, in the sub-Saharan places of Africa, you have some of the poorest countries in the face of the earth. I mean, just absolutely dirt poor people. And uh, there are, of course, one or two countries, if you look at Nigeria, that have oil. It's a different story. They at least have some income due to the oil. But countries without that uh, have been very bad. And when you look at their economic freedom scores, they're among the lowest in the world for the longest period of time. They don't have economic freedom, with one exception. At the turn of the century, Botswana, again, a rather small country, landlocked, with about five million people, uh, had the first, was the first African country uh, other than South Africa to move a measure of economic freedom that was above the world average. And in just the past couple of years, after you know a decade or so, they became the first African country without oil to have their average living standard above the world average. So that's the sort of thing you can see. Yes. When you have classical economic principles, when you give people uh, the greatest amount of freedom and control over their lives. 
Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Robert Janetsky. His book is called Rich Nation, Poor Nation, Why Some Nations Prosper While Others Fail. You can find out more at classicalprinciples.com. Thanks so much for being on the show, Robert. Thank you, sir. And we'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.